The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Here we go. It's the Halloween. Ep- Wait, Gar? I thought we had some creepy music to insert, didn't we? I thought we were going to get Mahler, Shostakovich, something like that. <laughs> okay, play that again. Play no, just play that again and let it run. Gar. Can you play your clip again? Your scary music clip? Just play it again and let it run. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Gar, that's, that's a theme from Donkey Kong. You think that's going to scare people? You th- <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, <laughs> can you edit this part out? <laughs> This is our Halloween episode. <laughs> oh, what, Gar? That's my producer, Gar, making himself useful, talking off mic. This is great radio, Gar. Great podcasting. Okay. Gar says that a big gorilla who bears his teeth. Right, I get it. He steals princesses, he throws barrels at you all the time. That is very scary. Well, maybe that's true. Gar, <laughs> can you give us a scream or something? At least that that's what we talked about. You were going to scream. Can you? There's a mic. Yeah. Okay. Let's try this again. Ooh. Yeah, that's better. That's better. That's good. It's the Halloween episode of The History of Literature. Today on the show, we're going to take a look at some ghost stories in fiction and in real life. scream God, can you <laughs> is it gonna work if I'm laughing <laughs> you sounded like someone was stepping on your toe <laughs> okay let's just edit let's just edit it for, okay take two ready today on the show we're going to take a look at some ghost stories in fiction and in real life today on the history of 
Have you ever seen a ghost? Yes. You have? Yeah, when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. In Hawaii? No, it was in New York. Really? It was cool. What happened? Okay, quickly. Yeah. Okay, so I'm like a little kid. I'm probably like six, seven years old uh, in a new apartment. And uh, we just come from, where did we come from? We had come from probably Australia. Anyway, so uh, uh, Renata, uh, nanny in the bedroom. She's sitting, my sister's asleep, she's sitting over there, I'm like hanging out, there's a doorway. All of a sudden we're looking over there and this like jacket comes waving through the doorway. Like there's an empty, there's no head, there's no body, there's no legs, it's just there. And then it disappears. And I was a little kid and I thought, okay, well that's interesting. And then I looked over at the nanny and she's like this. And I'm like, oh wow, so that was real. Oh, okay. Wow. Cool. <laughs> I didn't. But is that a ghost or is that just some weird floating jacket? That's a reason to move thing. to me. I don't know what it is. But. Okay. That's Keanu Reeves telling Jimmy Kimmel about a ghost that he saw. We all have stories like this, don't we? We say we don't believe in ghosts and then we qualify it. Oh, but there was this one time something happened. I, I never really figured out what that was. Couldn't explain it. Ghost stories. We're talking about ghost stories today. We use that phrase broadly now. We we use it to cover anything scary, any tales of fright and horror, campfire stories, like the babysitter who gets prank calls. Remember that one? So she calls 911 and they say, Oh, ma'am, we've discovered the call is coming from inside your house. Broadly speaking, that's a ghost story, too. That one always disturbed me. (laughs) Where's my golden arm? That's an actual ghost story. These are all stories you remember from childhood, right? From slumber parties and sleepovers. When it's fun to sit around and scare one another. I can remember in college we were doing this. I don't know why. (laughs) I don't don't know how this brought up. I think someone had talked about the, the story with the hook and the car roof. You remember that one? Cars parked in the woods, and they're talking about a, an escaped killer who's been roaming through the woods, or they hear it on the radio. Watch out. Watch out for the escaped killer. You'll know him because he has a hook for an arm. And then they hear some noises, and they decide to leave, and they're saying, oh, don't be so scared. What are you afraid of? Oh, I'm just afraid. Let's get out of here. So they leave. They get home and they see a a hook embedded in the roof of the car. Those are scary stories. And it works kind of like the story of the babysitter and the call coming from within the house. You think something is far away. You think it can't happen. 
and suddenly it's up close. It's right there beside you. That's the trick to David S. Pumpkins, right? The final scene of David S. Pumpkins. Check that video out if you haven't seen it before. That's destined to be a classic. It's only a year old. It's already getting the oral history of David S. Pumpkins. You can read now. Classic Tom Hanks Saturday Night Live sketch. But all those have the same trick. My kids call it a jump scare. The golden arm is sort of the classic. You know how that one ends, right? Grave robber has stolen a woman's golden arm. She was buried with her golden arm. And a grave robber comes in. Maybe it's her husband. He wants the gold. Digs up the the coffin. Takes the golden arm. Then goes home and starts hearing a voice. Where's my golden arm? You know that one, right? And it builds and it builds with that spooky, slow voice. You're sitting there in the dark. Maybe there's a flashlight. Maybe a flashlight under the covers, casting some strange shadows. Where's my golden arm? And then at the end, you shout, You've got it! You grab someone's arm. People scream. That's why it works, because you're telling a ghost story or you're listening to one. And the story itself is about someone who thinks it's far away. And suddenly it's up close. So this woman in college, she knew the story. She knew where it was headed. She knew that I was going to shout it, reach out in the dark, but that didn't matter. It didn't matter that she knew the ending. She knew it was going to startle her. I guess it's not surprising how she acted. I watch horror movies where someone is creeping through a house, knowing full well that the monster or the psycho killer or whoever, whatever, is about to show up crash through a window or something. I know. You can tell by the music that it's going to happen, and I still don't want it to happen. I still would rather change the channel or get up and walk out of the theater because even though I know it's coming, it doesn't help. That makes it worse. But this woman, she started to scare me by how scared she was. She was listening. She, She jumped up in the dark, and she grabbed my arms and pinned them to my side, and she said, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Don't you dare do it, Jack Wilson. Damn it. Don't finish the story. Don't do it. (laughs) Why do we seek these things out? Why do we want to listen to ghost stories? What scares us the most, and why do we like that? Do we like it? I don't know. I can remember one that really got me. I had a book of ghost stories when I was a kid, skeletons coming down the fireplace, that kind of thing. But the one that got me was simple, probably because I thought it was true. It was about a mean old man who used to yell at a group of boys from his old cobwebby house. Then the man died, and the rumor was that he had set a curse on anyone who interfered with his grave. So the boys one night dared each other to go visit it at midnight. One boy said he would do it. The others didn't believe him. So he said he'd stick his knife in the ground as proof they could see it the next day. So a couple of his friends say they'll go watch. So the three of them go out to this grave, and they find that everything is dark as much scarier than they thought up there in the graveyard at midnight. But 
to keep going anyway. They're boosting each other's courage. Finally, they reach the grave. Are you really doing this? They hear a moaning sound. It's the man. So they run. But the boy with the knife plunges the knife into the ground as proof. But that's interfering with the grave. The curse kicks in. The boys run. But the boy with the knife can't. Because the man has reached up out of the grave and is holding him back. He screams. The next day, they find the boy at the grave. He stabbed his knife through his own shirt, pinning himself to the ground. And he died of fright. Why was that story so scary to me? Because it could happen. Thinking of dying of fright, thinking of how scared you can make yourself in the dark, thinking of the boys running away and you're stuck there. It's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. When you know you're doomed, thinking about being that afraid. One of the scariest things that ever happened to me was when I was little. I was walking home, and I decided to cut across this old field. I was trespassing, but who cared? There weren't crops there or anything. It's an old, barren field, and suddenly I heard this dog barking from far away. I could tell it was angry. It was an angry bark, and the dog was running toward me. It's getting louder, getting closer, still far away, but getting closer. I never saw the dog but I could tell that it was running and it was angry. So I started running to try to make it out of the field, hoping that it was just guarding its property, that if I made it made it out of the field, onto the road, it would leave me alone, but I didn't know. And it was hard to run. I kept stumbling when the dog was getting closer, barking, barking, desperate, just running with desperation. This was flashing through my mind as I was running and stumbling, running as fast as I could. Would it jump on me and just tear me apart? I was running, my heart was pounding, my throat was filled with phlegm, I was choking. Or was it blood? I was running so hard, falling, getting up, running, desperate myself, my eyes on the road ahead. And I reached the end of the field, finally. The dog barked, screaming with, with anger, roaring right up to the edge of the field. And then it stopped. It stopped coming toward me. I just made it to the road. I started running down the road. I never turned around. I can still see the dog. The dog I never saw. The dog I'm just imagining. I can still see it. It's a big black dog with its jaws opening and closing furious rabid bloody a hound from hell (laughs) still scares me it's real the image is real i scared myself there was a an event to trigger it a scenario but the fright was all within me that's what's so scary we're scared of being scared our own 
capacity to be scared. Now, here's a good question. I never saw the dog. For all I know, there was no dog. What if I imagined the bark? What if I was susceptible for some reason? Maybe someone had told me there was a dog in that field. What if I had imagined the whole thing? Imagine it getting louder, and then I started running. What if I had fooled myself into thinking that there was a dog right behind me for whatever reason? What if I had been struggling with something? Let's say I was having a hard time at school. Maybe my parents were getting divorced. Maybe other kids were picking on me. Maybe there was a a farmer who used to come into town and who used to... We used to throw rocks at his truck. Maybe he got out one day as we ran away and said, I'll sick my dog on you. Right? All these pressures on a boy's mind. Maybe some boys I knew had been mean to a dog. Tortured it in some boyhood prank gone wrong. And maybe there was a story that the dog's ghost was going to roam the fields looking for revenge. You can see how the seedlings of scary stories like this get started, right? For how we can imagine things that maybe aren't real. Is Does that make it any less scary? I don't think so. Ugh. This general framework covers so many ghost stories. Toni Morrison's Beloved is an example. Is there a ghost? There a ghost of the the baby grown up and returning to haunt the house? Or is that the the mother's guilt that needs a manifestation? Needs something to help her overcome, resolve the issues inside her mind, the guilt that she's feeling. And Henry James's Turn of the Screw is another great example, a great literary example. The story is about a governess who takes a job watching two children in the country. Their parents have died, and their uncle, who's now responsible for their care, is not all that interested. In fact, he explicitly tells the governess that she's not supposed to communicate with him for any reason. Which, as a plot device, this is perfect, right? It's like the telephone line being cut or the... The cell phone being out of batteries, it helps us, the readers, helps keep us from asking the question, well, why don't you just get in touch with the uncle, have him straighten this out, send him a <laughs> send him a telegram or something, give him a call. But it also feeds into the character's feeling of isolation, which can have strange effects. I'll spoil a bit of the story, not all the story, by saying that the governess comes to believe that she's seeing a pair of ghosts. The former governess and and her lover, who had been another employee at the estate, and the governess then thinks that the children see them too. And the children are denying it to the governess. It's not clear exactly what's happening. Why would the ghosts appear to the children? And why would they deny it? Or is the governess just losing her grip? 
inventing all of this ambiguity we fool ourselves that's scary too who wants to live with a brain that will play tricks on you that wants to scare the hell out of you who wants to live in fear afraid of your own mind but here's the thing I've had some experiences that are unexplained now I always (laughs) whenever I talk about the unexplained I have to start with the story about my mom and the UFOs. <laughs> How's that for a good lead-in? This was during the 70s when everyone was talking about UFOs. They were having a cultural moment. Maybe the space aliens were drawn to disco before they decided that it sucked and left. Burned all the records. <laughs> Who knows? So my sister and I would ride home. Have I told this story before in the podcast? I might have. I'll tell it again. Who cares? My sister and I would ride home from my grandparents' house in the dark country lanes, dark country roads, and we'd look out the back windows of the car. We'd look out at the stars. You'd see a light now and then. You drove past a lonely old farm. This is in Wisconsin, in the middle of nothing, cornfields, lonely farmhouses, and now and then a lit-up grain elevator or something eerie in the distance. Some nights there were fog. Some nights there were moths. Clouds of moths we'd fly through. Sometimes you'd see an animal. Its eyes on the side of the road lighting up in the headlights. A raccoon, a deer. So we would look out the back windows at the lights up in the sky. And every time we saw one, it wasn't fixed like a star. We'd shout out, there's a UFO. <laughs> and my sister would say, take me, take me. I'm ready to leave. <laughs> Which irritated my mom because she took it as a personal slight. But my mom would always say, oh, that's a helicopter. Or, oh, that's just a reflection. And generally... She would be the kind of reasonable, common-sense, practical mom that she was and is. But one night, she slowed the car, pulled over to the side of the road. Kids, she said, get out of the car. So we got out of the car. This was so unusual. (laughs) This was not normal. Why are we getting out of the car? We were in the middle of nowhere, pulled off on a stretch of gravel next to this lonely road. All you could see is our headlights, what our headlights was lighting up, and she pointed off in the distance across the field where three red lights were hovering. Those are UFOs, she said. (laughs) We were astounded. What? Really? They are? Yes. She said they're not planes. Planes don't line up like that, right on top of each other. And planes don't hold still in one place. They're UFOs. My sister and I stared in wonder. These were UFOs? Mom said felt weird 
to be outside at night when UFOs were around. Or maybe not. Maybe we needed to get used to it. Maybe these were our our new friends or new masters. (laughs) Maybe they could communicate to us somehow. Maybe we needed to reach out. Then my sister said, Mom, that's a tower. (laughs) With its red lights to make sure that planes didn't run into it. And so we got back into the car. So that's a story where something that seems paranormal turns out to be very normal. I still like the feeling we had as a family and how affecting it was that it was my mom, the usual voice of reason, who had fallen into the spell of thinking she was seeing UFOs. Maybe it was all those times that we had claimed that a plane was a UFO that had put it in her mind, made her particularly suggestible that night. Our UFOs... (laughs) I met a guy once who had a job interviewing people who had seen space aliens and then drawing what they saw. He was sort of like a character sketch artist. Once I was at a party and he had this big snake. He also owned a snake. He had this big snake wrapped around his neck and his shoulders. Someone said, why don't you show him the pictures? And he brought out all of these drawings he had made of these space aliens. And they were all kind of real looking because they were descriptions from people. And he was a very good artist. I don't know if aliens are real. How would I know? (laughs) I do know this. When I grew up in this small town, our town's newspaper was run by a man who once went missing for a few weeks. And when he turned up later, he claimed that he had been abducted by a UFO. He wrote about it for the paper. (laughs) And then nobody ever talked about it. You'd think that that would kind of follow him around, right? His job was the news and getting facts right. You'd think that wild tale like that might interfere with his credibility somewhat, but no. He, then again, he had no competitors. He ran the only newspaper in town, and I guess everyone just lived with it. And he did a, a fine job of reporting the the village board news and the bowling scores. When I heard about it, this had happened years before I was born, when he was a young man. And he was getting older by the time I met him. When I heard about it, I thought maybe he had had an affair, covered it up by concocting the story. And then he he maybe never planned to write about it, but his wife might have dared him. Oh, space aliens, huh? Well, that's certainly news, isn't it? Aren't we running a newspaper? <laughs> So we had no choice but to keep going. Oh, yeah, okay, well, I'll write it up as a story. (laughs) Put it in the paper. Knowing that it could destroy his credibility, but save his marriage. In the end, it all worked out. He ran the paper for 40 years. But isn't that a bit haunting? That he had had that experience, or not, and lived with his wife, who believed him, or not, 
What did that do to him, to his marriage? How do people live with each other with that kind of disruption and an event that would certainly change everything if it happened? Or would it? Maybe you end up thinking it's kind of like a dream. But life sort of goes back to normal. It's not like you can call up the aliens and ask them to come back. Maybe you always sort of wait for them in the back of your mind. It would change things for the marriage if it didn't happen. How do you live with someone who has had that experience or believes that he did or has made it up to fool you? So anyway, I told the story about my mom and the UFOs. Oh, now children. Kids. Those are UFOs. <laughs> Such a great story. My mom hates that story, though. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> I told that story because I wanted to get to something else. That was a story where something mysterious turned out to be very explicable. But I have a few stories about things that turned out not to be explicable. Highly inexplicable. We've been talking about ghost stories, but this is where I pull over the car and ask you to get out. It's a dark, cool night. There's a gentle breeze. And off in the distance, you hear the howling of a wolf. And I point to the distance and say, Kids, time I was about 10, I was as skeptical as anyone about ghost stories. Casper the Friendly Ghost was an obvious cartoon. Ghost stories always had some explanation. Those eyes you thought you saw at the foot of the bed were actually your own feet. That kind of thing. And if there was no Santa, then why would there be ghosts? Even the grown-ups didn't pretend that ghosts were real. They didn't even put on the facade that they did with Santa. On the other hand, I went to church every week, and I was told all about heaven and angels and spirits. And even setting aside the resurrection, heaven was a place you could go. After you died, you could go to heaven. And if you were there, why couldn't you come back? Even grown-ups believed in heaven, right? If you were up there and God was all-powerful, maybe he would let you... Come back for a visit. You really miss someone. Then, as I got older, my belief in heaven as a place faded, and, and so did my belief in ghosts. 
it was a sign of maturity as I was in my early teens, my mid-teens. Sign of maturity to set such things aside. Be tough. Be brave. Watch scary movies and stare through them. Not afraid. But then in high school, everyone started in with the satanic Bible and Ouija boards. And suddenly the idea of Satan, the idea of, uh, of malevolent unseen forces in the world began to take shape in my mind. Why would people worship witchcraft or practice witchcraft, sacrifice goats, whatever else they were doing out there in those fields? things I wasn't invited to, that they were quiet about when they returned to school. Why would they do that if there wasn't something to it? And what about all those weird cults? People who had followed Charles Manson or other cult-like figures, what power were they drawing from? And then one of my friends, let's call him Luke, fell into kind of a bad scene. He couldn't Control himself very well, and he had some anger issues, self-esteem issues, and by the age of about 15, he was addicted to drugs. I would see him, and he wouldn't be himself, and it began to affect how I thought about consciousness. I saw him. He responded as if he was him, but it wasn't really him. You could see him slipping to another self, another person. It was as if he had a different mind that he wore at times. Like he could change his mind, literally. (laughs) Is that literal? I don't know. He could adopt a, a whole different personality, a different way of thinking. What was he seeing when he was there? How did it feel? I was watching all this from the outside, but he seemed like someone who was shifting into strange territory. Strange dreamscapes, internal dreamscapes. And when he went to rehab, he suddenly matured in a certain way. He came back openly smoking cigarettes, which he said the counselors had encouraged him to take up there, take up smoking, because it was the least bad option. His parents just had to live with it. He smoked right in the house, and he bought a motorcycle. Suddenly, he was 16 and out of control. It was as if Something had broken in him. They had broken him. They, meaning adults. They thought by sending him to rehab, they'd get him help or maybe scare him straight. Instead, he stopped caring about anything as if the rupture to the general pattern of his life had been too severe. Now, nothing in the old life mattered. He knew how the world really worked. So he became a little bit larger than life, thanks to rehab. But he still had to go to school, and he still had to kill time, which meant he still hung around us once in a while, and he'd tell us stories about rehab and stories that he'd heard in rehab. And he told us that one day they'd been discussing rock music. A lot of the guys in rehab listened to Black Sabbath and Metallica and Iron Maiden, other metal music, heavy metal. There were some satanic elements there, and they associated it with drugs. That was why they were talking about it in the first place. Should we keep listening to this music? Is it a bad influence? Is it, in fact, satanic? The counselors had to talk through all these issues with them. 
someone asked about the satanic messages that were famous on the songs that you played backwards. The counselor told them that he didn't think that the bands had tried to put those in on purpose. But if you were open to Satan, if your heart was open, if you believed and maybe wanted Satan in your life, as these bands might have, as they claim to, then Satan could enter in ways like through the music. And he'd leave the message behind. It was like the mark of his being there. That was creepy enough. But then, my friend said that later that night, he and his roommates stayed up late talking. Four guys in two bunk beds in a dark room. And they talked about Satan, what they thought of him, whether they believed, whether he was better than God, what the downside would be of letting him into your life, if there was a downside. And suddenly, my friend said that they heard the sound of heavy breathing coming from the center of the room. It was like a large animal resting, but not at rest. Like an animal that's just been chased or is about to chase. It's prey. That was freaky for me at age 16, and it always stuck with me. It's kind of Freudian in a sense that your unconscious could be opening doors that you're not even aware of, but with a real twist. Your faith or your beliefs could be opening those doors too, letting things in. Spirits who came to visit, sometimes they stayed away because of who you were and what you believed. There was no room for them. But if you opened that door. A few years later, I had a strange experience with some backwards sounds. I had saved up all summer to buy a Macintosh computer. This was when I was in college. They were new then. It was a big deal to get one for your dorm room. Have your own computer so you didn't have to run to the computer lab. You could stay up all night working on your paper. And then when the paper was over, or if you were procrastinating, you could play Tetris. It's two for two. (laughs) Paper plus Tetris. It was worth a summer of work to buy the thing. So one of my high school friends who knew a lot about computers came over to help me set it up, and he brought a disc full of sounds that he had 
I didn't even know that my computer had a speaker. I didn't know it would make a sound at all. And I remember saying, oh, what does it do? Like, do you have a bell? <laughs> do you have a bell? That was my idea. Oh, cool. It'll go ding like a bell. Maybe I can set it up to to ding once in a while. And my friend just shook his head and put in the disc. And suddenly we were listening to things like Homer Simpson falling down the stairs. I told that boy a billion times to pick up his job. I like to play with you. Right. Stuff like that. My friend showed me how to put the sounds together, how to mash them all up. We had Marv Albert saying yes, and David Letterman saying poignant but not overbearing, and some song clips from Walk Like an Egyptian, and She Blinded Me With Science, and Whip It, random stuff, just the hooks, just a certain word here and there. Pop culture potpourri. Here's looking at you, kid, was in there. Oh, and this one. Well, that's the story of my life. No respect. Tell her no respect. No respect at all. You kidding Well, I was drowning. I was yelling, help, help. And the lifeguard ran over. So I'm like, buddy, keep it down. Keep it down. <laughs> now, I don't get no respect from anyone. So, stuff like that. We mash it all together. And then my friend starts showing me the effects you can do with it. We sped parts of it up and we slowed parts of it down and we were making things higher pitch and lower pitch. We put on some echo. We cut out some snippets and pasted them back in all out of order. And by now we've got a a minute or two of audio that sounds like it's been through the blender. And then my friend says, oh, we can play it backwards too. You just press this button. And I made a joke and said, oh, right, now we're going to hear the satanic message. And he stopped and looked at me seriously and said, should we not do this? And I kind of laughed. Really? Really? You worried about it? And then he said, well, I don't care. And it was almost as if he was making it as a statement, as if he'd really thought about it and then thought, you know, that he was done going to church or something like that. He had he had given up one set of beliefs and he was willing to entertain something new. That window was opening for him or he didn't mind if it was open a crack. He was kind of interested in it. And I had the attitude of that I that it was just a joke, that I was joking around. I didn't I didn't believe in any of this at that point. But his attitude was, well, if it's true, I want to know. So we pressed the button and played the thing backwards. It was a total jumble forwards, as I said, just random words and voices and songs popping out everywhere. You could kind of recognize things. It was kind of funny. And then you'd hear Ronnie Dangerfield, but his voice would be really high, or you'd hear, you know, Jay Leno or someone, Jerry Seinfeld, David Letterman, 
Homer Simpson. Songs were Chris Elliott. Voices, songs popping out everywhere. And then backwards, it was even more of a mess. I can still hear it, how it sounded. It was sounded like... And then, right in the middle of that sound, right, right in a whole soundscape of that kind of sound, it sounded just like this. Worship Satan? That clear. And we stared at each other, our eyes wide open. As in, as if to say, you you heard that, right? And then we fell on the ground, on the floor. We just, we couldn't believe it. We could not believe what we had just heard. There were no other words, just those. Everything else was... And then, worship Satan. What were the odds? We played it over and over to make sure it wasn't something else and we hadn't just tricked ourselves into hearing it. But no, that was what it said. It was that clear. It was one of the most bizarre things I've ever experienced. And then I couldn't stop thinking about my friend and the way he had opened his heart in that moment. Had that been what happened? And then my friend said, let's just play that part back, just that part. So we did, again and again. Worship Satan? And then I said, let's play the snippet. Let's just, we'll highlight the worship Satan, we'll reverse it. Just that part. We'll just reverse that part so we could hear what that part of the sound clip was forward. I had this idea that maybe if it had been one of the songs, then we would know that it had been put in there by the musicians. That would make sense, right? They put the message there on purpose, and we had accidentally reversed that part of the song, and we ended up hearing the message. But... Guess what? It wasn't a single song. It was three different clips that we had put together. And guess what it said when you played it forward? When we took the worship Satan and we re-reversed it, played it back forward? It said, Yes, it's true. We fell on the floor again. This was the craziest thing ever. We just could not believe it. Even now, I find it hard to believe. Except that we played it so many times to make sure we played it for other people. Find it hard to believe, but then again, crazy things happened to everyone. Keanu saw the floating jacket. Crazy things happen to everyone. We just tend to 
forget about them. story. I have to say, again, I don't exactly believe in ghosts, but let me tell you what I haven't been able to explain. This one is about my grandfather. So my grandfather was a fiery guy, a Hungarian, Depression-era kid who grew up hungry and full of a zest for life. He was a coach, and he wanted to win. He played cards, and he wanted to win. He went fishing and ice fishing and golfing. And generally, he couldn't sit still any day of his life. He would, even after retirement, he would golf 36 holes every day of the week, 18 holes at the crack of dawn with his three of his friends. Then he'd come home, pick up my grandmother and her friend, and go play 18 holes with them. Sometimes he'd add an extra 9 or 18 on top of that just to keep going. 72 holes. I think, he's, I think he did that once in a while. The long summer days, but everything about him was on the move. He loved sports, he loved friends, he loved food, he loved good conversation, he loved being alive, and he lived hard. He was quite something. He was a great guy, just a dynamo of a guy, a strong presence, strong life force. We laughed once. Because (laughs) this was the kind of thing he would do. Because my grandmother was golfing and she hit a hole in one. And he was very proud of her. He was very excited. But he had never hit one. And it drove him crazy. All that golfing that he did. And here she had hit a hole in one. And he hadn't. And then she hit another one. (laughs) She was in the paper. Everyone was congratulating her, and it was something that we found we could tease him about. Not because he couldn't laugh at himself or because he 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 couldn't handle her success, but because it was so he was so obviously serious about it. It mattered to him. <laughs> Those kinds of things just got under his skin. We were all happy when he finally hit one, and he could put his trophy next to hers. The golf course made them, you get them, I think you, you, every year you put a a couple dollars into the hole-in-one club fund and then someone hits a hole-in-one, it's like insurance, someone hits a hole-in-one, they get a little trophy and it's like a one with a round circle, then you put the ball in there, the actual ball you were using and then you buy drinks for everyone and that's how the hole-in-one club works. So you get this trophy. It's a, it's the numeral one with a round circle. And you stick the ball right in there. And for years, I would look at those trophies, the three of those trophies on the mantle, when I would visit my grandparents' house. And I would think about how much my grandparents loved each other and how it was just like my grandpa to be proud of her, but also determined to do something himself. When he was five years old, he had followed his older brothers into this big river and dog paddled his way across. They could all swim. He was just he was just five. He should should not have been anywhere near that river. But he dog paddled his way across. This was kind of like the same thing 70 some years later. Me too. I can do it too. And 
at the end of his life. Things started to fade for him a bit. His body started to break down. He had some surgeries, but he always fought through. Always returned to his active life, as active as he could. Kept going until finally he started taking less and less pleasure in things, in activities, more and more pain, more and more discomfort. Finally, he was in the hospital, and we all knew that the end was close. And I went to see him. I've seen three grandparents like this. My grandmothers were sort of ready. They were a little tired. They were ready. My grandfather was not. He fought. I'm not saying one way is better than the other. The end of life is always different for every person. There's beauty in all of it and sadness, sorrow. I'm not saying fighting is any better than letting go. If you knew my grandfather, though, you'd know that this was his way. Grab onto life while you can with both hands. Tighten your grip. Fight hard. I would hold his hand and he would clench it, grip it, and stare into my eyes, trying to stay, just trying to stay. I've never felt more like death was a passage than I did in that room. And I could see that there was a place he wasn't letting himself go. He wasn't walking down that passage. He was hanging on, staying as long as he could. I didn't think about this at the time, but later I did. If anyone was going to be a ghost, it would be him. Anyone, if I've ever met anyone who couldn't get enough of this planet, it would be my grandfather. He showed that to the very end. This was a place he wanted to exhaust. This was a life he wanted. He wanted to squeeze every last drop from this life. He loved it so much. Finally, he slipped away and it was over. We all went back to the house with my grandmother, who was exhausted from the weeks of visiting the hospital and the difficulties. We came into the house, turned on the lights, and the golf ball, my grandfather's golf ball, was on the floor. The one from his trophy, his hole-in-one trophy, it had fallen out and rolled halfway across the living room. We looked at his trophy. His trophy was empty. It was his ball just there in the middle of the floor. Hadn't been there that morning. Was there now. Oh, that's weird, my grandmother said. She picked it up. She snapped it back in. And my father said, has that ever happened before? No, she said. Huh, never. And we all looked at each other and it, it just seemed like we all were thinking the same thing. It just seemed like my grandfather had 
beaten us to the house. He had gotten home before we had. His spirit had left the hospital, had stopped by at the house, (laughs) tried to do something to let us know that he was still there. It's this spirit of his, whatever it is, this force. It couldn't speak or or do anything major, couldn't appear to us, couldn't change time or bring us a suitcase full of money, couldn't float around in clothes, but it could somehow manage to pull the golf ball out of the trophy and roll it to the middle of the floor where we would find it as soon as we came home. Or it was just a coincidence. Maybe a truck drove by, shook the house, the ball snapped out. Maybe it was just time for the ball to roll out of the trophy. Didn't quite fit anymore like it used to. Who knew? Who knew? We always say it's explicable, it's a coincidence. Who knew? The next few days were sad and difficult. We all missed him. We were all tired. We had to do all the unpleasant phone calls and other things you do when you're full of grief and apprehending what it means to be without someone you've loved your whole life. It's hard to see relatives and friends go through the different stages of grief, and their sadness can pull you back into yours. Just when you're out of your deepest despair, You fall back in, and you have to write the obituary and make the arrangements and pick out clothes to be worn in the casket and all of these things that just remind you of the finality of what's happening all the time. It's not fun. It's life. It's part of life. It helps to have family around, and it brings you all close You're reminded of how close you are to your family, how there's things that only you can, that you can only share with your family. And you celebrate and take joy in the memories that the group of you, the survivors, share of the person you've lost. And eventually, after some time passes, you start to come out of the deepest and darkest places, the the worst of the grief and amusing things happen, and it becomes easier to smile or to laugh at them. You you start to feel like the worst is behind you. You start to put things in perspective, the way you're going to miss someone now going forward. And that started to happen for us after a few days. And then you go through the visitation and and the funeral. You feel this sense of relief. You've seen hundreds of people who visited, which is wonderful, and it's joyous at the end of a long life, full of accomplishments and and touching many people. It's a wonderful thing, but it's also exhausting to see all those people and to live through their grief and their memories. And it's just it's a nice feeling to be back at the house, back in your smaller group of people, just the core, just the family members. And you can laugh about the crazy things that people said or something funny that happened. Something, and we say things like, oh yeah, Grandpa would have really enjoyed hearing that or being there for that. So this is what we were doing, reminiscing a little. 
and things felt lighter than before. And there was one anecdote that made us laugh a little harder than most, and all of us laughed out loud. It was the first time we had laughed, really laughed, since the moment when my grandfather had died. And at that moment, that moment when we were laughing, the doorbell rang. And my father was standing right by the door. He opened it immediately, and no one was there. It was an empty porch. We, from the living room, we could see all the way down the steps, on the sidewalk, up and down the street. There's no place for anyone to go, no place for a a prankster to hide. No time had passed, no time for someone to run away. It was just empty. My father looks back in and says, no one was there. And my grandmother said, well, maybe there's a short circuit in the doorbell wire. And my father just stared at her and said, has that ever happened before? No, she said. Huh, that's weird. No, it had never happened before. It's just just the coincidence, just at the very moment when the group of us, my grandfather's closest relatives, his loved ones, when we were finally laughing for the first time, just when a spirit if spirits are real, might have said, me too. I wish I was still with you, enjoying this moment. Me too. A spirit that could work so hard and care so much, try so hard. Spirit joining us, me too. Don't forget me. So, my plan was to talk about another experience I had when I myself was looking after two children, and I thought I saw some ghosts, or maybe I did see some ghosts, and I was also reading The Turn of the Screw, and it was all confused in my mind. I still don't know what exactly happened. I know there are things that I've never been able to explain, but we're kind of running long, so I'm going to save that one for another Halloween episode. Maybe that'll be 2018. But now, just want to talk about my grandfather and what that experience meant. It could have been coincidence. It could have been some force, some god or some spirit that wanted to trick us. It could have been a force, a spirit, or a ghost that was my grandfather that wanted to send us a message. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's something to fear. Most ghost stories are of ghosts that have some vengeance to seek, curses. They're scary because ghosts are scary because they're unfamiliar. And the people who write ghost stories know this and they plan for that to be the effect. They go for a scary effect. And so why not make the ghost angry? Why not make the ghost coming back to take out some revenge? But it doesn't have to be that way. We could be talking about angel stories. Angels are popular too. Could be coming back to do some good. 
Or maybe there's a scientific reason. Some believe that toxic fumes from mold and carbon monoxide can have an effect, can warp the brain in strange ways. They attribute a lot of people's ghostly visions when they think they see ghosts or think they hear ghosts. They attribute it to mold. Or they say it's electromagnetic fields. If you live too close to a power plant or an electromagnetic field is rolling through for whatever reason, it can change perception. An infrasound that's been measured sounds so low that humans can't hear them. They have a disorienting effect. They make people feel queasy. They make them out of sorts. Some say that that's what certain ghostly effects are when you say when you see a haunted house it's actually one that's near something that's producing this infrasound some say it's just the product of wanting to believe maybe that doorbell didn't ring but we as a group wanted to hear it could that have happened that a whole group hears something at the same time because they want to and what about the golf ball did we imagine that too Did one of us pull it out of there, maybe went to look at it, forgot, or didn't admit it later? Accidentally knocked it out and then felt bad? I don't know. I really don't know what happened in my grandmother's house for those two incidents, but I know this. There are a lot of unexplained mysteries that happen. They could be the spirit rising out of the body. That's our our common conception of ghosts. We have a a mind-body divide that we believe in. We think the spirit inhabits the body. This is across cultures in different forms. That's what could be happening. It could be signs of the multiverse, which I've become kind of obsessed with. Maybe we're all passing through multiple locations all at once, like beams of light passing through an ocean of atoms. That's how I had it explained to me. There's an ocean of atoms. Think of an ocean full of atoms, and every atom is a different universe. And they're all similar and slightly different. And when you're making choices, there's a bunch of probabilities laid out in all these different universes. And when you make a choice, it fixes you in one universe. But there are many others that are all very close. Your consciousness is like a beam of light passing through all of these universes all at once. And maybe there are some slight disruptions to this fabric, to the space-time continuum. Maybe someone, some spirit, has enough gravitational pull to bend a universe a reality, a single fixed universe to his or her way, bend it toward them in some way, enough to dislodge a golf ball or rattle a mantle a little bit, enough to knock a golf ball onto the floor, or enough to press a doorbell or jump there, jump into the wire there somehow, connect it. <laughs> or maybe a consciousness wants so badly to be part of a different world it jumps the rules bends the rules of that world just slightly 
to hop in and out. Or maybe I'm lying to you, deceiving you, or maybe I'm lying to myself. Maybe I can't trust my senses or my memory or my mind. Maybe this didn't happen. We talk a lot about the human condition on this show. We talk about hopes and dreams and love and hate, anger, reconciliation, happiness, and melancholy. They're the building blocks of literature. We don't talk a lot about distrusting the senses or madness or fear. But those are human too. Those are very human. Happy Halloween. Did you recognize our theme song backwards? Ah, you know how much I had to pay the orchestra to do that. <laughs> Sorry, we didn't get to my Italian ghosts. They will have to wait for next year. Oh boy, Halloween! You know the worst part about Halloween is that it ends October, my favorite month. This music is driving me crazy. Let's play. It. <laughs> let's let's switch it around. <laughs> Okay, that's better, right? I feel like I've emerged from a tunnel. Ah. So, what was I saying? The worst part about Halloween is that it ends October, my favorite month. But now we have the other holidays to look forward to. We're going to have Professor Bill on again to help us with the poetry of Thanksgiving and gratitude. Some John Ashbery in the works, hopefully soon. And Mike Palindrome has been reading... J.D. Salinger for the past 30 years or so, and he has some thoughts about that. And our big list of other topics that you have suggested or that I have thought of. We'll get to all of them that we can, so sign up now and tell all your friends. What else? Oh, yes. Our sister podcast, The Smart Awesome Show, Smart People Doing Awesome Things. That's available now. We'll be talking to an inventor next you won't want to miss that we're still ad free and still going strong although frankly it's not all that strong to be honest frankly it's more on the weak side of strong if strong is a spectrum it's way down there by the weak side so if you'd like to support the show please consider heading over to patreon.com literature where you can sign up to help us out buy me a coffee Buy me a beer, and let's settle in for the holidays with some good books on our lap. Let's crack them open and find out what's there. Or you could just listen to the show. I had someone confess to me, I don't read literature anymore. I didn't think that would be one of the consequences of the show. I think most people, hopefully, come away from the show and are encouraged to go read some more. But, hey, however you want to use this show, that's up to you. Okay, happy Halloween, everyone. Stay safe. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>